Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Love that last line, till the earth is filled with your glory. And I hope that today, even as we dive into to God's word again, um, that he would do just that, that a little piece um, more of this world would be filled with his glory, if not even just our own hearts. Well, again, my name's um, Jesse. I'm the pastor here, and we're picking up in our series on the Gospel of John, a series entitled, Jesus Changes Everything, a series that is unbelievably half over. And I know, I know, I know, that's, that's staggering to some, it's been staggering to some, um, but we've been doing that for a, a purpose. We've been taking this gospel in, in large sweeping chunks, trying as much as possible to keep these accounts that we've been walking through intact. Not because we couldn't, with profit, slow down and, and push the details further, but at least in this sweep through the gospel, we've been, we've been trying to understand those details within the context of the accounts in which they appear. And arguably, that's, that's at least a little bit what the author of this gospel wanted from them, how he wanted those details to be understood. He didn't just give us the list of propositions to believe, but rather he gave us some of the most significant statements in Scripture with the context, within the context of the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus. And so I'm sure as we've been sweeping through, for those of you who have memorized different, different verses from this Bible, How much more significant do they become when you see them within the context of the stories in which they appear? And that's no less true, not going to be any less true um, today as we transition to the second half of John's Gospel, which we pick up in John chapter 12. If you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn there again to John chapter 12. But before we turn to the text, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we come to these accounts, these few accounts that on the front end of that final week leading up to that final day on which your son hung on the tree, I pray, Lord, that we would not only see you rightly, but likewise see ourselves how we fit into this story as followers of your Son. I pray for courage to stand firm with him. Pray for strength to sacrifice alongside of him. I pray for the the heart to hold on to the gospel no matter the cost. Because in the end, he's already done the work. And all we're really doing is leaving it in his hands, I pray we would do just that. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. In a couple of hours, um, in a couple of hours, I'll get on a plane, hectic week ahead, I'll get on a plane and head to um, Amsterdam, to uh, the Netherlands, to connect with my doctoral advisor. 
It's my week ahead. I haven't packed yet. I figured that out. I don't even remember what time the plane leaves. <laughs> but in a couple hours, theoretically, I'll be on a plane and, um, and I'll be connecting with my doctoral um, supervisor, but 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 one of the the bonuses of this trip is that going through Amsterdam on the way to um, a town called Groningen, where the university that I'm doing a, 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 a another another degree at um, is ridiculous. Um, on the way to Groningen, one of the bonuses of this trip is I'll get to connect um, with some of the students that I've taught at Tyndale Theological Seminary, just south of Amsterdam. And, and it has been a great part of my own life being able to be a part of that institution, not least because there I've had the opportunity to teach students from, from nearly 30 different nations. And one of the students that I'm really looking forward to connecting with there is a young guy by the name of Yasir, who comes from the country of Pakistan come to the Netherlands to study, and now actually in his journey, he's, he's about to embark um, on a doctorate of his own. And he plans at the end of that to return to his homeland. And he will be, if that goes the way he's planning, he will be at that time the only Pakistani alive in Pakistan to hold a PhD in ancient Near Eastern literature, more specifically to, to, to have a, an expertise in the Old Testament. And he plans on, on, on giving his life, devoting his life to the training up of others in the gospel. But in all likelihood, it will cost him his life. There were two Pakistani students um, that I've taught uh, during my time at Tyndale Theological Seminary. One came to me one day, uh, distraught, not able to keep up with the work, had aced oh, over half of the course that I was walking her through, came to me one day in a crisis and said, I can't keep up. Why? Pulled out her phone. Showed me a picture that her parents had sent just that week of the house she grew up in, in rubble, because it had been demolished because of their walk with Jesus. In all likelihood, Yasir will go back to his country to devote his life to the training up of others at the cost of his life. But this is not just an opposition that Yasir faces in his homeland. This is an opposition, in fact, that all of Christianity has faced. And that, in fact, we face today, though it is slightly of a different sort here in our home country and not yet escalated to that level. But it is yet an opposition to the things of Christ. Which brings up the question, what do you do in the face of such opposition? What is life supposed to look like? Whether it's murder or mockery. 
whether it's just coming over the national news or you're in a country where it's coming down from the government that is suppressing those who've put their faith in Jesus. What do you do? What is life supposed to look like in the face of opposition? And in history, there's basically been two responses. If you were going to broadly categorize these, there's basically been two responses. Some, Some have decided to take out the white flag of surrender. Like Thomas Jefferson in the wake of the Enlightenment, they've taken out their scissors and they've cut God out of the Bible and then proceeded to cut God out of their lives. They've simply succumbed to the opposition. They've joined the opposition. They've given up being in opposition. They've taken out the white flag of surrender. Others, rather than taking out the flag, have rather taken up arms. Like the Crusades, they've donned their swords and their shields and saddled up their horses and set out to take out the opposition. But do you notice anything these responses have in common? Each stems from the same misguided perspective that the opposition is ours to deal with. And yet, and yet, rather than taking out the white flag of surrender, rather than taking up arms, what we're going to find in this passage in John chapter 12 is that Jesus changes all that. That opposition is no longer ours to deal with, but rather an opportunity in which we might live out our faith in him. Because he's the one that ultimately deals with it. Which we'll see calls for two very different responses. Rather than surrender... It calls us to stand firm. And rather than search for a fight, it calls us rather to sacrifice on behalf of others. So first, to stand firm rather than surrender. The end of chapter 11, we read that the the Passover of the Jews is once again at hand. and, And this is the Passover during which Jesus will die. We read that that many went up to Jerusalem to celebrate and particularly to purify themselves for the feast according to their customs, which is a a very ironic statement given the amount of of language circling around this idea of purity in this gospel. They go up to purify themselves for the feast. And in that time, there, there, there is a buzz already going around about whether or not Jesus will show up to the feast. His conflict with the Jewish authorities is at its height. And there was already a warrant out for his arrest. And so we come to chapter 12. It says in verse 1, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Probably sometime the Friday before his crucifixion. They would celebrate Passover Thursday night. 
is best we can tell. That year they would have celebrated Thursday night. That's what the meal was in the upper room. It was a Passover meal. Six days prior, which means the Friday before. So the Friday before the crucifixion, he shows up at Bethany, it says, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So it says they gave a dinner for him there. Which means that from six days before the Passover, this is now five days before, according to how Jews read the calendar. Okay, Because the, the Jewish day starts not in the morning like, like we do. It starts in evening, right? So he arrives on Friday night, on Friday, and that night, which is the next day, that's the start of the next day, they give him a dinner, which may very well mean that they're actually giving a dinner in honor of him that was prepared as the Sabbath meal for that week. Very interesting, right? I mean, especially if you know the customs of the Jew. This is a meal that was to celebrate the rest of creation. It was a longing for the rest of redemption. But now the meal that they prepared for the Sabbath, they're actually holding in honor of Jesus. Which ought to tell you that the, that the scene here, that, that, that something is about to happen because you don't just go around as a Jew taking what's meant for God and offering it for whoever shows up that day. It's really interesting. So look at what happens that night. We're told that Martha served, which if you're familiar with this family, you're not going to be surprised about, right? Everywhere else we find her, she's serving in some capacity. Martha served, and that Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at table. Which if I just walked out of a tomb, I might be reclining at table too. But that the third of, of these three siblings, Mary, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, a rare perfume of that day, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. I told you a few weeks ago, you only, you only anoint people for two reasons in the ancient world. For one reason, in two ways. One reason, to commit them to God. Either as a king, a priest, in service to God, or you commit them into his hands at their death. We can't do anything with them. They're going to die put some oil on them, give them to God because there's nothing left for us to do. And here she does it, both as a king and because of the coming cross. But it says, look at verse, look at verse four or three, that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's an interesting detail, isn't it? I mean, why would he even write that in? I mean, paper was expensive back then. Ink was expensive. That's an interesting detail. The, the fragrance of the house, of the perfume, filled the house. It suggests, at least, that the person who's writing this was there. That's not a detail you just come up with, right? But more than that, it highlights the extravagance of this. And you can, say, you can tell that by what happens next. Because next, it's Judas, one of the disciples, who says, 
why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? It's a year's wage back then. 300 denarii and given to the poor. But it says that he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Which explains the next statement that Jesus makes when he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is an extravagant thing. It's not, though, that Jesus is saying that we shouldn't be concerned with the poor. Concerned for the poor. But that our concern for the poor has to begin with our commitment to Christ. Otherwise, like Judas, our alleged concern for the poor is in reality a concern only for ourselves. This is an extravagant commitment to Christ. And Christ is saying, this is where it all begins. Which is worth noting. When all the world around you is going around saying that they're caring for everybody else and you're not caring for anybody else, when we got to say, no, we have the real thing that grounds our care for anyone else. Because Christ cared for us first. We don't have any other reason. There is no other reason. But this side, of the cro- this side of the cross, we ought to care for the poor because of the cross. Not in spite of it. It begins with a commitment to Christ. A lavish commitment to Christ. A, a, a pour out the perfume commitment to Christ. A year's wage at a time commitment to Christ which is a commitment not only when it's convenient, but in the face of intense opposition. And this is what I want you to see here. One of the dynamics you can't really come to appreciate here is the volatility of the situation. Have you ever thought what it was like that night leading up to Jesus' death? Have you ever thought about that? This wasn't just some happy-go-lucky moment in time. There were things on the line here, and people were putting their lives on the line here. And you may not see this unless you, you start comparing this with the other Gospels. And let me just draw out one piece of this. In the, in the other Gospels, we're actually told this same story. We're told simply, though, in those accounts that a woman, that a woman came and anointed Jesus. Can you remember that in your mind for those of you familiar with the other Gospels? And does anybody remember what it says in Mark particularly? This woman comes and anoints Jesus, right? And then it says these incredible words. And Jesus is the one who speaks them. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed, this will be remembered. But did you ever notice that in those other gospels that recount the same story? They don't name her. You ever wonder why? You ever wonder why? It's because those Gospels, and particularly Mark, 
which was written, most of it was written two, three, four years after the events it records. That last part of Mark, which records the, the passion narrative, was probably constructed as best as we can tell in Jerusalem two, three, four years after the events it records. And the names that are missing in Mark show up in John because if they were named in Mark, it would have been signing their death warrant. It's what scholars have come to call protective anonymity. Leaving out the names because though they did things that would have gotten them in trouble, the author wasn't willing to put their names into the script. Because to be associated with Jesus meant your life was on the line. This is a lavish commitment to Christ. A pour out the perfume commitment to Christ. A year's wage at a time commitment to Christ. Not in spite of the opposition, but in the face of it. If you want to know what the response is that's called for by the gospel for the rising opposition of our own times, this is where it starts. Not a surrendering, a capitulating to whatever the latest wave of secularism is, but a holding to Christ. A standing firm. Because Jesus stood firm for us. So she keeps at this for the anointing of his body for burial. Standing firm. Standing firm, however, does not mean standing firm to fight. Searching for a fight but rather standing to sacrifice, which in the face of opposition is a second rather different response compared to where we would often go. Verse 12 says that the the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. We've already looked at the significance of palm branches. We did that a couple weeks ago, that this was a a, a widely accepted nationalistic sign uh, that the Jews were looking for their independence from foreign occupation. This was their way of saying, we're looking for someone to get rid of the Romans. Because remember, this was a nation under foreign occupation, waiting for someone to save them, to lead them, as it were, in their rebellion. To lead them in the fight. And at first, it seems like Jesus, rather than denounce their cries, actually embraces them. It says in verse 14 that that Jesus, in answer, found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written in one of their prophets, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
And I I think it's important to see that this isn't like Jesus just stumbled on this donkey one day because there was this predictive prophecy some hundreds of years before. He just had to get on the donkey to come into that city. It wasn't like that. Jesus knew what he was doing. He chose the donkey. He went out and found the donkey because he was making a statement saying, the one you're waiting for, that's me. So he shows up. But rather than just just, just giving in to their hopes for, for, for a, a rebellion against Rome, there's something more going on here. Because if you go back to Zechariah, if you go back to Zechariah, where that prophetic picture was first painted, what you find is that it's not just talking about the arrival of a king, but of the arrival of God himself to not only set his people free from the tyranny of whatever foreigners were occupying their country at that time, but it was a picture of God showing up to set free from, the, from tyranny, the foreigners themselves. So when Jesus hears their cries, right, this is the way the chronology goes in this, in this picture. When Jesus hears their cries, that Hosanna, blessed is the one who can't, comes in the, name of the, in the name of the Lord, what he does is he goes and gets the donkey to say, here I am, God Almighty. Come to set all wrongs right again, which is about more than just the Romans, because this is for the Romans as well. Because I'm fighting a far greater foe. But Jesus' point only really comes out, at least in the text, if you're not looking back at the that the particulars of that prophecy. It only really comes out when the focus here shifts from the the cries of the Jewish crowd to the request of a small collection of Gentiles. Those this passage calls Greeks. It's the same word. After the the estimation of the religious leaders that the the world had gone after him, we're told in verse 20 that among those who who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And and, and in fact, that that these came to Philip, maybe because of his Greek name, who, who, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, saying this, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's a great request, right? I really like that. That's the request that, that, that Spurgeon would, if you know the, the old preacher Spurgeon from the, 18th, the 1800s, would, would walk into the pulpit with, uh, with that in, in the, the crease of his Bible to show people, sir, we would see Jesus as a reminder of what he was doing each week. But this is from the Greeks. This is from the Gentiles. We would see Jesus. And yet, look at the answer to this. What does Jesus do? Does he just walk around the corner and say, hey, here I am, boys. Here's me. What does he do? No, the next thing that Jesus says in, in, verse, in, verse, uh, in verse 14, no, 
23, in verse 23, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, which is always the cross. So you want to see me, Jesus says, look at the cross. Because he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And Jesus makes the point again, just a couple verses down as the story progresses in verse 32. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Because Christ dealt with the opposition by dying for the opposition on the cross. Not by searching for a fight, but by sacrificing on their behalf. Because in reality, he was fighting, again, a far greater foe. But as much as Jesus is saying that to see him, we must see him in the cross, see him hanging on the cross, he's saying in response to these Greeks that his followers will see him in the mirror. In between, just nested right in the midst of Jesus saying, you want to see me, look to the cross. You want to see me, look to the cross. The focus actually shifts from Jesus himself to his followers. Listen again to what he says in verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. No doubt, talking about himself. But then he says next, Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world keeps it for eternal life. Which he's not talking anymore about himself. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Follow me to the cross. And where I am with my Father through the cross, there will my servant be also. Because if anyone serves me, then the Father will honor him. But that's a far different response than we're used to. Sacrificing on other people's behalf in the face of opposition. I, I don't do that normally. I will put up a fight sometime. I'm more wired that way. I'm a fighter. I do that. I would rather fight. Some of you, maybe you're on the other side of it. Surrender. Give in. And if we don't do that, what do we do? We circle the wagons, preserve ourselves, right? Wait for somebody else to show up. Often we say, oh, well, at least we're waiting for Jesus. Until what? Until the the power swings and we find another way out and it turns out, no, well, we could wait for somebody else. It doesn't have to be Jesus. Because all of those is, are ultimately saying for ourselves, we got this, we're doing it, it's about me, it's me versus them. Whether it's surrendering or searching for a fight or circling the wagons, it's all the same thing. It's about me. We're not seeing that the opposition was dealt with in the cross. And here's a different response. That those would, who followed Jesus would see that he dealt with opposition in the cross and not only see it there, but that we would see it reflected in the mirror. Which I don't always see. I don't go through life. I don't wake up in the morning 
seeing in my life the sacrifice of Jesus lived out. And what this passage is saying is if you don't see that in your own life, chances are you haven't seen Jesus for who he is or you've lost sight of him along the way. was a missionary by the name of John G. Patton who said, God gave his best, his son, to me. And so I give back my best, my life to him. And John G. Patton did so with the entirety of his life, serving as a missionary to the cannibals in the South Pacific. And in his autobiography, he tells the story of an elderly gentleman named Mr. Dixon. He's working his way to the mission field, and he he tells this story of Mr. Dixon, who's trying to persuade him not to go. And Mr. Dixon's argument climaxes in this cry, The cannibals! You will be eaten by the cannibals! To which Patton replies, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you, Mr. Dixon, that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by worms or by cannibals. For in the great day, he says, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Jesus says, you want to see me? You should see me in the mirror if you've seen me at all on the cross. The rest of this chapter is an explanation of why many didn't follow Jesus, why many don't follow Jesus, and and don't ultimately believe in Jesus is, is the way that it phrases it. At least not with a faith that's worked out in faithfulness to him. And a faith that's not worked out in faithfulness to him is really a defunct faith. And the summary of the rest of this chapter comes in verse 43. Let me just take you there for a second. Because that's where it says this. It says that people don't believe in Jesus, or at least don't believe in him rightly, because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Because the glory that comes from God is a glory, just like the glory of Jesus, that is always had through the cross. It's had by those who follow Jesus in bearing the cross of their own. It's had not by those who surrender, but by those who stand firm, lavishly committing themselves to Christ. And stand firm by sacrificing themselves on behalf of others. Otherwise, you haven't seen Jesus. or at least haven't seen him rightly. It's a glory that comes from God because it's not about 
the worms or the cannibals, but about what comes after in the resurrection. Let me leave you with two encouragements. First, let me encourage you to stand firm with Jesus. Let me encourage you to do it lavishly. 300 denarii worth of perfume is something else. That is a lot of perfume. Okay? I think we can all agree on that. That it filled the house. The fragrance filled the house. She wasn't reserving any of that for later, right? Except whatever he was saying, keep for my burial, right? Probably because she was pouring it out too quickly. And he was saying, we got something to wait for, right? Filled the house. This is a lavish commitment. And I would suggest that many of us, most of us, when we give to God, the fragrance doesn't fill the house. It doesn't. Because we reserve stuff for ourselves. And I would suggest further that whatever it fills it's often not all that pleasant because we're usually breaking open bottles of cheap aftershave. And so let me encourage you to give God not only your all, but to give God your best. And from this passage, let me encourage you even to think about how you can do that for the poor. Because Jesus already died, right? He doesn't need you taking that and and pouring it on his dead body. It ain't there anymore. You don't have to do that. And there's a sense in this passage that though he says the poor are always with you, and then we take that as, well, the poor are always with you, that he meant us to get about the business of caring for this world when he went to where he was going. And he's there. And so we ought to be about the business of caring for the poor. So let me, let me encourage you to think through how do you engage the poor, the outcast, the downtrodden in our society? Because this is a picture of what Christ did for us. Because that was us. And so don't blow it off as just, oh, I love my family, I love my friends, I love just those around me. We ought to, like Jesus did, be going out of our way to care for those who cannot care for themselves. Which, let me second then, encourage you not to just stop with the poor, but this side of the cross to stand firm with Jesus by spending your life in sacrifice for those who oppose you most. I cannot get over the picture of Palm Sunday. That here, they were crying out to to, to free us from the Romans. And yet Jesus would die for the Romans. That he rode into that city and, and in the shadows of that day were the Jewish authorities who were seeking to put him to death. And he died for the Jewish authorities. And that if we were there, we would have been part of the crowd who on one day was crying for him to free us from the Romans and just the next crying for him to be crucified. And he died for us. And so let me encourage you in life. Some of us have a really big 
like no-go zone where we will sacrifice for other people up to a point, but when that impedes our comfort or where we like to maintain our life, that, that's a no-go. I have that. I have a lot of that. But let me encourage us to see in Jesus that there was no no-go zone. And to give it up. To give it up. To not draw the lines. To not make the distinctions of where we will sacrifice on others' behalf and, and where we want, who we'll do it for, and who we want. Because Jesus didn't draw the line with us. Let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to stand firm with Jesus by sacrificing your life for the sake of others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray um, I pray that we would know Jesus, see Jesus, see the cross, hear the story of this book in, in context as it un, 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 unravels that, that the entire second half of this book is focused on, 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 on that, that one moment and that all the chapters before were looking forward to it. That we would see Him in the cross, but that it wouldn't stop there. That we would see Him in the mirror more and more, Lord. More and more. May we see Your Son in the mirror reflected in our own lives. Pray You would, again, give us the courage to stand firm. Give us the strength to sacrifice. May we see Jesus. Amen. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.